Welcome to the transfer window, and not only our last podcast of 2017, but subsequently our last podcast before the actual transfer window itself is once again open for business. I'm Henry McRae, and to make sure we go out with a bang, we've brought in the transfer window A-team of podcast regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry, who are joined by the one and only Graham Hunter, or at Bumper Graham, if you live your life in the Twitter sphere. Coming up, we've got exclusive news that will perk up the ears of Manchester United and PSG fans as we bring you the latest on Cristiano Ronaldo as he appears to be agitating for a move away from Real Madrid. Over the next 50 minutes or so, we'll also have a look at Virgil van Dijk's incredible £75 million transfer to Anfield and what it means not only for Liverpool, but for the transfer market in general. We'll discuss what's behind Jose Mourinho's recent comments about a lack of spending power compared to league leaders Manchester City. And we'll have more on the likes of Neymar, Philip Coutinho, Alexis Sanchez and several others. So let us get on with it. And as I said, we've got some big news on Cristiano Ronaldo. So Duncan, what can you tell us? Yes, uh, development in Cristiano Ronaldo's situation with Madrid. Um, as we can all see, it's, uh, it's not a happy place between the two at the moment. Um, lots of talk about a new contract there or him leaving the club, heading out of Spain, which has been going on for months now. Um, what I've been told is that Cristiano Ronaldo has asked Madrid to set his asking price um, for a summer tran- transfer at a, real, a realistic fee. Um, what they consider a realistic fee is less than 100 million euros. Um, that, in their view, would allow two uh, long-term suitors, uh, Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester United, the opportunity to sign him and pay the kind of wages he's looking for, which he's made clear to Madrid he expects, as the best player in the world, in his opinion, to be paid the best wages in the world, i.e. he wants to have his salary increase beyond the level um, Neymar is at a PSG and Lionel Messi is at, at Barcelona after his renewal. So um, basically, in my view, uh, Ronaldo and his agent are giving Madrid a decision to make. Uh, make a decision over whether you want to keep me, whether you still think I'm the most important player for the club, whether you still want my commercial revenue, whether you still want my goals, or let me go and get the money I deserve elsewhere and be and give me the proper platform to play elsewhere. Graham, uh, you're on the ground in Spain. That seems, in, uh, in the current climate, incredibly cheap for the apparently the world's best player. How do you think that's going to go down in Madrid? Um, I, I think it's it's an interesting game of bluff because um, it, it seems to me a nonsensical idea that um, Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester United are going to want to spend the money that Real Madrid will set as... Um, some sort of negotiated settlement because the buyout clause was there for a reason. It's only 13 months since they negotiated with Ronaldo. His value, as Duncan points out, does, you know, in the modern game, it's it's sad that maybe we have to speak about this on a football podcast, but clearly Cristiano Ronaldo is is a beacon, is, is um, in commercial terms, has a value beyond the goals he scored. Um, intermittently, he's played awfully this season occasionally 
he's shown identical uh, predatory instincts as he showed during one of the standout spells of his career in March and April last season, to, to some degree in May as well. Um, and therefore, we'll see how Cristiano Ronaldo holds the whip hand in that conversation. Um, Madrid clearly want to reinforce around him. They committed to such a long-term contract for a reason. I'd imagine that it's feasible that Ronaldo might be able to negotiate some sort of change in salary. But in in order, what I, I you asked me, Henry, what, what how will that go down? I think that Madrid will look at it with the coldest, clearest eyes that they've been able to since they signed him, because Ronaldo has continually held the upper hand and his and his representatives. Now that he is declined, but a declining force, which in terms of age, in terms of goal return, is is a fact this season. Um, I'm not entirely clear how, other than necessarily goodwill or the threat of some sort of sanction from George Mendes, how he holds that whip hand and how he gets a price down low enough that Manchester United are say, will say we're willing to invest in that package of transfer fee and wages. And beyond that as well, people can change their mind and Cristiano Ronaldo has earned the right to change his mind. But it was May when he told a former teammate um, in Cardiff, I, I can't live in Manchester again. I won't live in Manchester again. And he used the phrase, if they could move Manchester United to a Mediterranean country, I'd sign for them tomorrow. So I think the market is small. I think the whip hand is with Real Madrid. But both Ronaldo and Mendes have proved themselves to be pretty remarkable men. So how, how it finishes, I don't know. You asked me, H, how it will go down. And I think it will go down like a, a cold cup of tea. I think um, in this situation, um, if the, if the suitor for Cristiano Ronaldo... Um, offer £75 million and promise to play him at centre-half, then they'd be getting a bargain. Um, however, it, back in the real world, um, there comes a time in any player's uh, relationship and any club's relationship with a player where a line has to be drawn. They have to say enough is enough. Cristiano has continually had his contracts upgraded. <clears throat> Every time Messi gets a new contract, Cristiano gets a new contract. Every time someone else at Real Madrid gets a new contract, Cristiano gets a new contract. And unfortunately, his bargaining power is decreasing along with um, the years of his career. I think it's unrealistic for him to demand a new contract at Real Madrid, having just signed one just over a year ago uh, for remarkable amounts of money. Um, and I do think that he will struggle, really struggle, to get a club to pay him more money at 32 years old, despite the fact that I think he still obviously would be an asset and a very, very big asset, both on the field and um, commercially to any club. At this point in his career, I would say for the first time, Cristiano Ronaldo has become a luxury signing. Uh, and in, in being so, he needs to find a club, if there's one out there, and PSG would obviously be the most obvious, that is willing to, to take a hit in paying the money he wants, as well as, as, well as the transfer fee. Um, but I still think that with the Neymar, Mbappe and financial fair play situation in Paris, that's going to be a very difficult sell to them. And I don't think Manchester United, uh, historically, uh, under um, the guidance of Ed Woodward, the chief executive, and the Glazer brothers, are necessarily going to be up for paying around 
90 million pounds plus uh, an exorbitant amount of money in, in wages. So uh, I, I would expect this will result in Ronaldo staying at Real Madrid with a sort of minimum pay rise stroke uh, bonus situation, which allows player and club to keep each other happy. Duncan, you're saying that he's asking Real Madrid to ask for a realistic price, but surely it's him it's being unrealistic if he expects to be able to go for um, less than 100 million. But that's not his perspective. He, um, his view is that Florentino Perez promised him a pay rise at the end of last season after his achievements in, in taking Madrid, scoring the goals that took Madrid to Champions League, um, Liga, and subsequently the, the Club World Cup. Um, Perez then reneged on that promise to improve his terms, um, according to his camp on top of the tax situation at the club, um, on top of uh, instances, for example, where uh, Ronaldo goes to pick up the Ballon d'Or for the fifth time in Paris uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Florentino Perez uh, publicly flirts with Neymar, um, suggesting that if he wanted to win the Ballon d'Or himself in the future, then Real Madrid would be the, the, the place uh, for him to go to, which is perceived by Cristiano Ronaldo as a, as a great uh, lack of respect on the part of the president in an already um, tense and fraught situation. I think Ronaldo, I mean, it's interesting, the discussion centres around him being a declining force. One, one of the things that has upset him is he feels that for four seasons now, that has been the discussion at Real Madrid, that um, Ronaldo had reached his peak and would be on his way down. His perspective on it is completely different. His perspective is that each one of those seasons he's performed um, at the same level, continued to score, continued to win trophies. And his, you know, his stated intention and, and with a player of his physical capabilities, it's one you have to at least, um, at least listen to, is to continue playing until he's 40. So he doesn't see himself as a guy looking for his final contract or even... Um, his final five-year stay at the club, he, he sees himself going on to 40 and resetting every record there's ever been in football. Now, that can be perceived as arrogance. It can be perceived as wishful thinking in his part, but he has um, done quite well so far. Um, and uh, he may be able to find someone who's prepared to bank on him continuing to do that. I don't okay. think there's any disrespect, Duncan, in, in that one, just very quickly. Um, I think that any club who are considering buying Cristiano Ronaldo, they're not worried about the present. They're not worried about maybe years one and two of his contract. They're worried about if they commit to a four-year contract and they're paying him the, you know, a huge amount of money. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo has been an exceptional example of a player who plays every game, who's had very few serious injuries or even injuries that have kept him out for more than a month in his career. Um, and therefore, in football terms, he's got quite high mileage on the clock at 32. I think that the worry for any club committing to that level of contract would be, can he continue that for another four years? He may think he can, but when you're committing to up to 20, 25 million pounds a year at plus in terms of wages, you've, that's got to be a concern for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's certainly from the club's perspective is that when, when I talk about disrespect, he, he is talking about what he feels the disrespect has been in Madrid in this sort of perpetual kind of whispering campaign in his, in his view that he 
he'd reached his best, he wouldn't be able to do it again. And the club has got to be thinking about phasing him out, which is still, I think, the underlying debate within Madrid. And you can look at it from the perspective of Florentino Perez, that he has at some point got to make a decision about retaining a guy who is very high maintenance and who is the, the central figure of his club. And there will come a time when he does have to. And, and we all know that Florentino Perez is a, is a political animal. So he has to make that decision with regard to his position as, as an elected president of the club and how it will go down with the supporters and how you can, if he decides to cash in on Ronaldo or decides that he doesn't want to carry that contract anymore, can he do it successfully, replace him, get the results on the field that the supporters will say, fine, yeah, President, you made the right decision. Okay, we'll monitor that story as it develops over the uh, the next few weeks, no doubt. Um, one bit of business that uh, appears to be done already prior to the window officially opening is the uh, transfer of uh, Virgil van Dijk from Southampton to Liverpool. Obviously, what something that was... Uh, uh, a move that was negotiated in the summer, uh, or an attempt to negotiate was, and has finally got over the line uh, coming up to this window. Uh, an extraordinary £75 million price tag for a central defender. Ian, um, what are the implications of this move for Liverpool, for the market? Um, how's this going uh, to reverberate around the transfer it, industry? It, it will, Henry. Um, I mean, when... when... When Neymar's rescission clause was reached last uh, last summer by PSG, we all gasped in in, in awe and, and amazement that a player could cost that amount of money. Um, but it's sent a, it, it's a new benchmark, basically. So uh, John Stones, formerly the world's most expensive defender at fifty four million pounds, uh, completely outstripped by someone who um, has not been playing at, at you know at the highest level. He's not a top six defender. He's not. Um, <clears throat> his international record is poor, with the Netherlands uh, and in a poor Netherlands team, admittedly. Um, his only other notable success before then was at Celtic, again in a in a league which is thought to be much inferior, yeah, even to the Premier League. Now, I actually am quite a fan of Van Dijk. I think you know I, I spoke to um, pod transfer windows uh, old friend Glenn Murray <clears throat> of Southampton uh, when he played against. Uh, Van Dijk uh, Brighton for, against Southampton and he said he was the best central defender to come up against this season and that includes central defenders uh, at Manchester United, Manchester City and and Liverpool uh, already uh, in terms of what, who Brighton have played and so I take Glenn's uh, word um, and, and he said he's mobile he's strong, he never lets go of you You're, he's always going to be there great, Liverpool have made a decision to pay a premium in a market which is clearly inflated. Um, I don't think anyone believes that Van Dijk's worth 75 million, but it, the market dictates these things. And let's face it, Liverpool's uh, need for stronger defending is absolutely crucial as they go into the second half of the season where they're trying to battle back uh, into the top four and play Champions League knockout stages um, as well as domestic competitions. So, uh, it's Liverpool's choice to pay that amount of money. I think they probably could get two very good central defenders for that price. But Van Dijk seems to be flavour of the month with Jurgen Klopp. Uh, I think he's very good passing the ball out of defence as well. So that's something which Liverpool value. I I'm just not sure that you know clubs, uh, I'd say Graham in Spain, are looking at 
the market in England and this particular transfer and perhaps um, either laughing or just thinking, is it just gone silly now? No, everybody in Spain um, that, that works in the industry, whether it's um, running a club, owning a club, agents or media, everybody knows that the financial landscape is completely different because of the current TV deal, the impending TV deal, <clears throat> the entry into the market of streaming companies, whether it be Netflix, Google or Amazon. And therefore, there's a, there's a complete acceptance, in fact, a, a resignation, nothing to do with Van Dijk's deal, um, but for several seasons that in Spain they know how far behind they are, that they still have to um, be on the level of scouting and level of preparation. And both of you guys are involved in helping that, um, that work. But now it's not simply about the assessment of a footballer's ability, but about his attitude, his background, his behaviour in Spain put a higher premium in general. There are successful clubs there, by which I don't mean simply the top three. I mean the top 10, 12, who will always be in the top division and who, who buy pound for pound uh, more efficiently, more effectively than the majority of clubs in the Premier League. And therefore, coming back to Van Dijk, from my perspective, um, one, um, I'm quite pleased about this because when um, Celtic, you'll just have to take my word for this, listeners, when Celtic were playing in the Champions League and being um, taken apart a couple of seasons ago, I phoned John Park, who was um, the guy who brought uh, Van Dijk to Celtic, and said, this guy looks to me, um, uh, even way back then, in the, whatever, it was a 6-1 defeat, I think, in the Champions League, um, as far back as 2013-14, this guy looks to me like an automatic football club Barcelona defender. Uh, that, that was evident then. I think his time in Southampton has proven that he's worth what Liverpool want to pay for him. And I think rather than the money, which I think we no longer need to... I'm a little bit surprised about the um, media and industry uh, outcry about the fee in England when it's simply a precursor. It will very quickly be forgotten about, not in terms of Van Dijk if he fails, if he's judged to be a failure for £75 million, that, that you know, bad odour will linger. But in, in, in a number of months, we'll be treating that kind of amount for that kind of player as commonplace. And, and more than that, the thing that fascinates me above and beyond watching how he plays for Klopp is that this is volition. Um, he's wanted it to be Liverpool for the longest time. Um, in the spring, I was at Soccer X in Doha and Qatar, met a former teammate of Van Dijk's who described to me his upbringing, who described to me the, the struggle he went through to... Uh, to lose weight, to not play overweight, to become a dedicated professional, to improve himself, and the degree to which he he then knew that his former teammate, his friend, would want Liverpool out of this deal. And I use the word volition because it, it's now clearly not about his actual football playing or defending ability. It's about his application. It's about his mentality. Does he rise to the challenge? Does he understand that there's far more riding on whether it's on or off the pitch, training, lifestyle, uh, decision to win the ball, decision to pass the ball, than has ever been in his life, either playing in Eredivisie or for Celtic or for Southampton. Therefore, that 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 equation about how we discuss the £75 million, pounds, I, I think, is not about the market, because I think it's where the market is at and has been at for a long time. It's about Van Dijk, the, the person, the, the man, his brain, his personal... Uh, attitude to the responsibilities thrust upon him now. And to me, it's a fascinating tale. I welcome it. 
He's a good footballer. Liverpool need a player of that ilk. Whether he's perfect, whether he makes some league winners, Champions League winners, I don't want to predict that. But if I were in their situation, he is the player I would have bought. And if I had that money, then I would have spent it on him. Look, I think Graham makes a very point there, very good point there about volition and, and mental attitude here because I think we can all see that this, with this transfer fee and with Van Dijk being the guy who's being brought in to solve the obvious problem at Liverpool, there, there's a lot of mental um, difficulties involved in that move and that Van Dijk is, has a lot on his shoulders with, with that fee and coming to a club which has... And you have to praise Liverpool for this and praise FSG. They've bitten the bullet. They've spent considerably more money than they've ever spent. They've gone out of their way to stop other suitors from getting the player. So Chelsea and Manchester City were interested in this player in this window. Um, And they they have pushed that deal through, um, put the medical in place quickly, got, got a price with Southampton, accepted done the medical, got the player signed so no one else could get him. And, and I think Graham's right. We will see prices for defenders go up into that kind of level uh, before too long. Whether I'm not so sure that Van Dijk qualifies as the best defender um, in the Premier League or qualifies the best defender for that price and his response to the pressure will, will show whether that's right or not. Um, I do know that he was offered um, when Liverpool got into trouble with Southampton in the summer because of Klopp being caught tapping up the player and Southampton uh, refusing to do the deal then. Uh, Van Dijk was offered to Paris Saint-Germain and he was offered to Barcelona. Clubs turned him down um, because the pricing for them didn't feel realistic. And we're we're talking about Paris Saint-Germain there and we're talking about Barcelona who were are ready to do 100 million plus deals for attacking players and also now need a, a central defender in this window. So the, the outcome is going to be interesting, but Liverpool have gone in a new direction here and they've actually probably paid considerably over the top to get a player that they feel is absolutely right for them and wants to play for them and has the application to, 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 to solve a very important problem and um, deficit in their team. So, is, this, is this a case of Liverpool spending uh, money they are about to um, bring in for uh, the sale of Philip Coutinho? So, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because they have been in negotiations with Thomas Lamar uh, to take him from Monaco if a Coutinho, uh, the price they want for Coutinho is met by Barcelona. So the, the money they get from Coutinho will mostly go towards signing Lamar for Monaco um, should the Coutinho deal happen. So I think it's more that they had the money in place. They didn't want to spend as much as this in the summer, but they had 60 million, 60 million plus in place to sign a defender in the summer. Van Dijk didn't happen because of their own mistakes. Um, so that money has now been transferred into the January window is being spent now. One of the significant um, aspects of this, which hasn't been touched on, I think, yeah, is that before this signing, Liverpool were very much in the same spending bracket as Arsenal and Tottenham um, amongst the so-called big six. This has taken them beyond Arsenal and Tottenham in terms of the money they're prepared to pay for a player, um, way beyond, in fact, <clears throat> in terms of record signings. So <clears throat> I agree uh, with Graham in terms of 
you know, we should respect the fact that Liverpool have decided to invest. There has been uh, an interest in this player for many, many months. And FSG have, have now taken the plunge. Uh, and it's something which um, uh, John W. Henry and Fenway have refused to do until now. It's a, I'd say this, it's a real uh, endorsement of, of Jurgen Klopp's judgment and of the faith they have in him. Or, if it doesn't work out, it will be the end of Jurgen Klopp next summer. So, it's going to be a very interesting uh, five, six months for Liverpool and their manager and their record signing. H, H, I want to come in here just to link what we've been talking about because, um, you know, when Duncan mentioned Barcelona's unwillingness to spend 60, 50, 60, 75 million quid on Van Dijk, that I think goes back to what I talked about, about scouting. Some clubs in Spain, and I, I would call it the majority, still scout and sign with more efficacy, more speed, and, and more daring than is the case in England. So, for example, today we've had stories about Samuel Untiti um, because he has a buyout clause which is completely reachable by, say, Manchester United or Manchester City, each of whom would like a player of that ilk. So it was only after the European Championships that he was bought from Lyon for 25 million euros on a five-year deal. Now, our um, news, it, it's right that clubs should be looking to try and get him TT, but I'd be very, very surprised indeed whether they get him simply by offering the buyout clause, which is 60 million euros, because he's extremely content there. And there's more movement which reinforces the point I was making about scouting and that Barcelona are picking up Yerimina, the Colombian in, in Brazil, who they've had blocked off for several months now, nearly a year. He's 22 at the moment. They're, they're a year ahead of everybody else. Let's see how he performs. I'm not singing the guy's praises and saying he's already a Van Dijk 75 million quid player. But Barcelona are going to take that player in for around 19 million euros. Um... Mascherano will go to China and they'll make money on, on, on Mascherano in terms of buying and selling, at least. And, and therefore, Umtiti, I think, will be renewed. He's very comfortable at the football club Barcelona. He is absolutely an archetype footballer that either uh, Mourinho's Manchester United or in, even Pep's um, Man City would want because of his absolute ability to read the game, win the ball and pass the ball. Not a towering giant in terms of height, but he's a fantastic footballer and a very, very, very good user of the ball. He's in the Van Dyke class, much, much shorter than Van Dyke. And therefore, in England, maybe aerially might be tested more. But he'll stay because he's the king of the castle um, over the next four or five seasons at the camp now. Gerard Piquet is 30, turning 31 in February. He will still remain for as long as he, he remains motivated. That will be the partnership that Yerimina has to break up. But both Yerimina at 22 and being signed for under 20 million and uh, Umtiti are, are prime examples of where the Premier League's leading clubs need to go now that they've got even more financial um, muscle. They, they absolutely need to be signing these players rather than having to buy them at a premium. I, I, don't, I don't see the point in allowing players of quality to blood themselves at other clubs and then see if they settle in. They should be being bought at 20, 21, 22 for lower prices by better scouting and then growing up at the club for two, three seasons before becoming dominant. Uh, to me, at least, 
that's the way when you begin to see the leading clubs in the Premier League playing better football, being more competitive, even more competitive than they are this season in the Champions League. But whether I think money blunts um, certain regimes to that ideal. Okay, interesting stuff. Um, while we're uh, while we're still on the Van Dyke area, let's uh, let's go to the quick fire. Um, I'll give you, you know, if, you, if Van Dyke's worth seventy five million, I'll give you a player. You tell me realistically in the current climate. Now that Van Dyke's worth seventy five, how much is this guy worth? And we'll start with you, Ian, mm -hmm. and we'll say Harry Kane. Um, Two hundred million. 200 million. Graham, if Harry Kane's worth 200 million, how much is Neymar worth? Neymar. Hold on, I've just, I've just been on the phone to uh, Daniel Levy and he's yeah. coughing his cornflakes out of that 200 million. That's, <laughs> that's it, boys. It's Daniel Levy. Let's get the Levy factor in there. Six, seven, <laughs> Let's say 500 then. Six, Six, 700 million and seven months of negotiation as well. <laughs> 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 Neymar is, is, is worth a king's ransom and, and there's no buyout clause. And therefore, if, if you want to know his price, his price is the patience of the owners of Paris Saint-Germain. Because if at the end of the season, and I stress if, Neymar were determined to go to Real Madrid, then Paris Saint-Germain's owners, number one, can say, no dice, baby. Number two can say, all right, 500 million euros, pay that up. Or they can say, we'll have all our money back, 222 million euros, and we'll have Cristiano Ronaldo. And that last answer maybe is the most realistic if Neymar were to move. Because he ain't, I don't think he's moving to anywhere other than Paris Saint-Germain, to Real Madrid, if he moves. And if he does move, boy, I'd love to see um, even Daniel Levy's negotiating tactics being being dwarfed by uh, Paris Saint-Germain's owner saying, I will have all our money back and we'll take Cristiano Ronaldo off your hands. Okay, Duncan, Philip Coutinho. Uh, Philip Coutinho, it, it, funnily enough, his price is going down in, in value from uh, the window. I think he was at his peak in the last window when Barcelona were ready to pay 150. They now don't want to pay more than 100 million for him. And I, honestly, I don't see um, another club coming in for him at that, at that kind of price. Maybe Paris Saint-Germain, maybe, but it's not really what they need. So, um, I, which is why Coutinho is worried that his, uh, his moment has passed. Ian, Alexis Sanchez. Uh, we've got a, a quick contextualisation on this one, um, Henry. He's six months out of contract, obviously, uh, in January. Mm -hmm. So his, his price is going to be related to that. I think Manchester City are quite prepared to pay up of to £40 million for him. And I also believe that the terms for his contract to Manchester City have been agreed. It's just about whether Arsenal can get a player to replace him in the January window, much as it was last summer when the Thomas Lamar deal fell through. So um, his price his price tag doesn't increase because of Van Dyke because of his contract situation. Okay. Um, strange uh, alien creature in the background of somebody there. But uh, Graham, how about Gareth Bale? Yeah, very good question. Uh, Gareth Bale has an elevated Real Madrid-style buyout clause and therefore he's only releasable if Real Madrid want to sell him, which um, until now was absolutely the case. Um, I'm not 100% convinced that the player has yet decided that he wants out. And therefore, his price, like Ronaldo, uh, is a negotiable element. There's no, there's no automatic buyout that's affordable or sensible if he's to be sold. 
Um, my opinion is that Real Madrid would ask for money back. Whether they would get money back, I don't know. But let's say that Manchester United's um, desire for him has not diminished, as disappointed as Mourinho was in Bale's actions last summer when he phoned him, talked to him, texted when Bale was leaving Spurs to persuade him to come to Manchester United. Um, at that stage, I'd, I'd really like to know the degree to which Mourinho's faith in Bale was dented irrevocably. If not, Manchester United have the money to give them their money back on Bale. And anybody that can keep Bale fit, a return on an investment of about 100 million euros. Okay, just last one, um, Duncan, just quickly, Thomas Lamar. Thomas Lamar, at least uh, 98 million euros. Um, if, if they manage to get an auction going again, they'd probably get it over 100 million euros. Okay, um, let's move on, gents, because I know uh, time is short and there has been, has been a big story over the last uh, few days um, concerning uh, a regular on this podcast, uh, Josie Mourinho, complaining um, about the fact that the Manchester United uh, have not been able to compete with league leaders Manchester City because he hasn't had enough money to spend. Um, Graham, how does that sit with you? Yeah, the, the line went crackly there, H. Is this, is this on me to begin with? Yes. Then, then um, <coughs> I liked. To, I, I watched him say it, and um, it, it was unusual for him, given how dark and saturnine Machiavellian he could be. That <coughs> was pre-prepared, but it was all said with a sort of resigned grin and um, apparently a sense of humour. But it's it's another part of his consistent campaign of complaining about things that, number one, distract from poor results. Now, whether he's culpable for those results or not is the eternal question about player performance. To what degree does a manager bear responsibility for missed chances or defensive mistakes? Some would say over a period of three games, not at all. Over a period of three months, definitely. Um, I, I didn't like his, his argument as he phrased it. There's a bigger cost for the great clubs and, and we have to pay more... All right, that's that's fine. But number one, if you want to go really on a basic level, the way he said it, um, and the, you know, there's a bigger bill for the great clubs when they come in to try and um, buy, and you know, we've got a responsibility to win the league. Well, okay, so do Chelsea and Spurs, and you know, don't you think we're as big as Inter and and Milan? All of that is fine. But anybody who's looking at that press conference, listening to that, seeing the headlines thereafter, I think the headlines didn't do any favours to either Jose Mourinho as the manager of Manchester United or Manchester United's budget. If the prices were too high already, then they went up as a result of that press conference. He, he's he said in the past as well, we, we, you know, we get strikers for the price that City get fullbacks. Okay, that might be uh, entirely accurate, but the, the, the disparity in, in the league is not about that. It's about a, a state of excellence that Manchester City have reached that United haven't yet. Um, they're, they're clearly, maybe he feels in a particularly powerful position because number one, this season they're performing better under him. You know, there's no question about that. If you could magically take this Manchester City away, United would stand a very good chance to win the league and maybe they'd be everybody's favourites. What it betrayed to me, what I didn't like about this is that there's an ongoing uh, battle um, on his part to try and either oust Ed uh, Woodward or to diminish his power, to bring more um, 
oomph in, in terms of Mourinho getting exactly what he wants all the time. And if I were in his shoes, I would have said that he maybe needed, he dodged a little bit with, with an entirely legitimate tactic of uh, quickness of the hand deceives the eye. Is it the actual buying rather than the amounts spent hasn't always been good enough? There are areas in which they've bought, whether it's been under his authorship or Ed Woodward's authorship, either during Mourinho's reign or prior to Mourinho's reign, when United simply haven't bought well enough. Have not. And at Mourinho's absolute best, um, which I think might well have been in his second season at Inter, in terms of buying, he proved himself to be a very good transfer market author. I, I don't think he's necessarily punched that weight at Manchester United yet. And he patently <coughs> thinks that Edward Wood is the blockage, or at least a large part of the blockage. I just would have thought that if he wants to achieve either greater autonomy, uh, a ridding of Ed Woodward, or has very specific players and very specific amounts in mind, I, I thought that after that um, draw with Burnley, he could have phrased it differently and better, and normally he would have done. I think the, um, the strange thing for me in this whole scenario is that in the evolution of Jose Mourinho's career, I look back to Porto and then to Chelsea at his first um, stint there, and even then going on to enter, and think to myself, this is a guy whose career really developed, um, went, you know, super stellar, mainly on the basis of making fairly good stroke, or not ordinary, but good players into excellent players, and, you know, good teams into unbeatable teams, because of his attitude, his desire to win, his coaching methods, his belief in his coaching staff. He turned Porto into European champions when they'd no right to be. He turned Chelsea into Premier League champions with people like Damien Duff and Idrigi Johnson. Really, no more than, not quite journeymen, but, but you know, good players who were, became excellent under him. Did the same into Milan and turned them into treble winners. And even at Real Madrid, improved a team mentally, physically, into eventually becoming... Um, better than a formidable Barcelona team. And so I feel quite disappointed, actually, now that he's complaining that, you know, the, the, the club isn't spending in the right way or spending enough because <clears throat> my impression of Mourinho as a coach historically has always been someone who prides himself on bettering his squad, bettering his players, bettering his teams to be better and become winners. And he showed at Manchester United when they won two trophies in his first season that he's able, still able to do that. And I do think um, that Graham's correct in saying that this is more of a deflectory tactic. And also I think it's a symptom, unfortunately, of his continuing um, enmity with Pep Guardiola. He wants to take some of the shine off of what Guardiola achieved at Manchester City by claiming that it's a financial um, advantage that City have rather than Guardiola. Um, in his second season, um, the same as Mourinho's his second season at Manchester United, producing a style of football, a style of winning, uh, a way of playing, which um, has brought around great joy to the public, I think, not just in England, but worldwide. And people are seeing Guardiola back to his best. I understand that because Mourinho doesn't just hate to lose, but he hates to lose to Guardiola. Um, so I think there's something of an agenda underlying this as well. Um, but I would question... Um, the fact that the net spending on players um, between the two clubs comes down to less than £90 million. And, and that's, you know, uh, that's one and a 
quarter Virgil van Dijk, which I Don't, think is a very small a small margin. Duncan, is he is this these just excuses or has Josie got a point? Well, look, I think I think Graham makes a good point in that it wasn't expressed very well, and the headlines that followed it probably didn't do Ed or Mourinho any favours. Um, and if it, you know, there's, there's a there's kind of a view that that Mourinho in every press conference controls exactly what he wants to say and deflects attention onto exactly what he wants for his best interest long term. Sometimes he gets it wrong. Sometimes he, he gets angry and frustrated and he lets things get out that he shouldn't have let get out. And Eva Carnero was a, probably the prime example of that. Um, and I think this is another example. This it's, it's something that Mourinho has felt for a long time. It's something that he's been trying to persuade Manchester United to do for a long time and saying to them, uh, your squad was awful when I inherited it. Um, and I have less. You're giving me less resources to spend than uh, the the team you want to beat to the title. In fact, he's asking them, "Do you actually want to beat them to the title? You want to have enough money to be competing, to be maybe finish second, and definitely be in the Champions League, or do you want to take them on head to head and try and take the title off them?" So, I mean, you can break it down various ways, and. And I don't think there's there's any question that City had a better squad than Manchester United um, when the two coaches arrived. And you can say, for example, how many, if, if, if you're put in charge of that Manchester United squad that Mourinho inherited, how many of the players he inherited would be guaranteed first choices in your team? And would you not want to change? You'd come up with a very small number, I think. David De Gea, Antonio Valencia possibly one other. So he started from a, a very bad base and of a lot of misspending on, on poor players who they've been stuck with. And then, you know, you could, when, when we're talking about transfer figures, I, I usually go to CIES, the you know, academic institute in Switzerland, to monitor these things. And they have City at 513 million euros in the last two summers, or last two years, and Manchester United at 382 million euros. So that's a 34% difference in spending, which is substantial. Now, where do you take it from there? Um, obviously, you don't do your team any favours by saying they're not good enough and by saying that the only way you can beat the opponents is to spend more money. Whether that is actually the, the realistic view or not, then it causes difficulties. And I think it puts... Mourinho in a tenuous position at Manchester United because we see over the last few weeks with these results, um, the support or an element of the support turning away from him and being deeply frustrated by not beating Burnley, not beating Leicester, getting knocked out of the, list, uh, the League Cup by Bristol City and by the, you know, the anomalous season that Manchester City are having to only have dropped two points halfway through the league campaign is... is unprecedented, incredible, and, and slightly flatters how they've been playing, I think. But the, you have a 15-point difference, which goes down very badly with the Manchester United support. If the Manchester United support turn against Mourinho at a substantial level, then the pressure he's putting on the board to change their organisation of the club and to give them more financial support becomes a difficult proposition because at the end, that doesn't be an argument of, do you give me what I want? or potentially have to look at a club elsewhere, it becomes an argument of, 
um, I might argue too much bother for us as a board. And would the fans be happy to see you go? And if he gets into that situation, he's, he's got problems. I also think Manchester United have got problems if that, if that is the, the way things go. Because if they do decide to replace Mourinho, who do they replace him with? Uh, the problems the club have don't go away. The quality of the squad, although greatly improved by Mourinho, is still substandard to Manchester City. Manchester City are not going to stop spending. So you have to bring in a new manager to resolve those problems, to reinforce the squad, to get them playing better football and try and catch up with that. And I don't, personally, I don't see anyone on the market capable of doing the job. So it's, a, it's, it's an interesting place Manchester United is in at the moment. I don't know about you, Henry, but I'm falling off my chair because I never anticipated that we'd be talking about the possibility of Mourinho being sacked by Manchester United. Um, <clears throat> that's something totally new on me. I thought that at this moment in time he was very safe. Um, but I get Duncan's point <clears throat> that uh, <clears throat> if the board and the majority of fans turn against, then it becomes a question. Um, I just, I, I think, I always, and I've said this before on, on Transfer Window, um, the best clubs before considering sacking a manager have a plan in place about who they'll replace him with and there is no one out there currently who I think is better than Jose Mourinho to manage Manchester United so um, I would think that you know the board will have to go with Jose in this window which opens next week and strengthen accordingly Okay on that note um, why don't we just wrap up with a quick prediction uh, from each of you else I'll ask you for a specific one uh, Ian What's going to happen at Manchester City in January? Uh, I believe uh, Johnny Evans will join them. I think that uh, they've um, been planning that for some time since the summer. They, their interest in Virgil van Dijk cooled because they knew he was going to Liverpool. So they, they will definitely uh, strengthen in that sense in central uh, defence. And also a left-back for cover stroke, uh, first-choice duty. Um, so obviously, as we've spoken before, a strong interest in Ryan Bertrand. But look out for a possible um, under-the-radar one for City in terms of left-back. That's all I can say at the moment, but uh, maybe next week we can talk a bit more about that. Graham, what's going to happen at Barcelona? Um, absolutely, for, for almost 100% sure, Yeri Mina will come in, uh, Javi Mascherano will go and play in Chinese football. Um, that actual move might well not happen until Samuel Titi um, is fit again. But during that market, it'll be Yerimina in, Mascherano out. Delafeo um, is a winger who's available. Um, I think would be an automatic to Sevilla, where he played well. Um, Montella, who um, got good stuff out of him at AC Milan. Uh, but Sevilla are, have an abundance of wingers with Correa and Nolito and Jesus Navas. That deal might have to wait, but they would love to get rid of him. Um, other than that, it would be a very big shock indeed if they got uh, Coutinho. Um, I think that the, the Catalan papers are full of uh, wishful thinking rather than an ability to persuade Liverpool to sell. And therefore, it's clear that what we'll be hearing about is Barca-Coutinho non-stop until the last day of the market. And I guess that in, in this crazy business, the, the, the transfer market, maybe stranger things have happened, but I don't expect Coutinho... And for the health of football, you know, Liverpool are resurgent. Coutinho is, a, is an extremely impressive footballer. He's absolutely tailor-made for Football Club Barcelona. But I don't, if that's what you are hinting at, H, 
I, I don't really expect to see Coutinho at the camp now in this market. And Duncan, what about Manchester United? Well, we've talked uh, several times about what Mourinho wants, which is left back, um, a left-footed winger and a midfielder. Um, the budget he had been promised was around 90 million euros. We'll see whether whether Manchester United are prepared to back him. He's laid it on the table that they need to spend more money. Um, he had persuaded them that they should spend more money. Let's see if they actually deliver the money in the window, because it's uh, as I say, it's an important time for Manchester United, and those relationships are being tested. Okay, that's it for today, folks. Uh, my big thanks to Graham. Graham, would you like to give us a little uh, plug for your your own uh, podcast that you do? Ah, uh, listen, if you're doing now, listen, I, I, I'm, it's not a heavy sell. Thank you, H. But if you're doing nothing better, then tune in for free um, to Acast or go to GrahamHunter.tv, and there's a nice compilation show of. Big football stars talking about street football out today. New and free and quite good fun. Great stuff. I'm sure it'll be excellent as always. Duncan and Ian, thank you for your efforts um, throughout the, the year since we lost, launched in the summer. Um, hope everyone's enjoyed it. We'll be around for the foreseeable future. And, uh, you know, most importantly, over the next few weeks in the transfer window uh, itself, when we hope to have some special guests uh, joining us throughout the window and the business end of the transfer industry. So thanks very much. You can get us on iTunes, you can get us on Audio Boom, um, and you can get us next week. See you or hear you then. Bye.